Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. Today we're going to be moving into the world of literature again, but we're going to be moving in the world of literary theory. So this is kind of a branch that crosses over between philosophy and literature. I've been looking at the different uh, postings that I've put up, and I've come to realize that I need to teach these two as much more integrated than I have been. So instead of uh, going back and forth between one about philosophy and one about literature, I'm going to start combining them into uh, single episodes. So in the episodes, we will mention things about philosophy, and we will mention how literature ties into that and vice versa. Now, the overall part of each episode will probably be mostly one or the other, but one of the things that I feel is important is for people to realize that these are not completely separate fields as people would imagine. One of the things that modern scholarship has done is to put everybody into their little box as far as disciplines. This is philosophy. You only talk about philosophy. This is English and literature. You only talk about literature. This is math. You only talk about math. This is history. You only talk about history and so forth. The problem with this is that all of these disciplines have a great deal of influence on each other. And so moving forward with these podcasts, I plan on incorporating more philosophy into the literature and vice versa in each episode so that you get a much larger picture and you get a much better understanding of how these things work together. Now for today, I want to focus on literary criticism and I want to give a little bit of a background pre-20th century and then I want to go into the 20th century literary theory, literary criticism. Um, today I'm going to focus mainly just on two, the uh, Russian formalists and the new critics. Uh, I usually do this all in one lecture with sort of all of the different uh, philosophical, or I'm sorry, literary schools that I discuss in one long lecture, but I'm going to try to break this down so we can do this in smaller, more manageable pieces. Uh, prior to the 20th century, literary criticism was not very scientific. It tended to be very much the same as what you would think of as uh, a movie or book review. Um, this was much the way that literary criticism occurred. They would talk about how good or bad a work was, um, basically giving you their aesthetic opinion and their opinion about whatever moral value the uh, work seemed to be putting forth. So it, it would be much more like what you would expect from to see a movie criticism. Uh, was, as we move into the 20th century, though, the swing of all of the disciplines is to become more scientific. This is true in philosophy. This is true in um, psychology, this is true in sociology, this is true in uh, literary theory. Uh, literary theory is a term that often frightens people, literary theory or literary criticism, because it sounds like it's going to bury you with heavy concepts. And it is a very deep field that you could get to that position. Uh, I'm going to try to, especially in these first introductory ones, keep it a little more... Um, a little more manageable. Uh, one of the things I want you to see with these is that not only are they something you can grasp, but they're something you can actually use. 
Um, the purpose for literary criticism is not to say a particular work is good or bad, but it's to get a better understanding and better analysis of what's being said and how does this tie into real life, my life, your life, everyone's life. Um, how is it, if it's from a different time period, have things changed much from that time period or have they stayed the same? So a lot of literary theory that we're going to be discussing is going to be discussed as tools to analyze things. And after we've gone through and discussed them uh, a little bit in, in brief, I'm going to actually start applying them to particular works on some of these podcasts. So you can actually get a sense of how to use them when you go out into the uh, world and you look around. Now the first one for the 20th century that I want to talk about is Russian formalism. This starts prior to the Russian Revolution and, as I said, was an attempt to make literary criticism or literary theory a little more scientific. One of the questions that the Russian formalists had was, what is it about something that makes it a piece of literature? How do we distinguish something as a piece of literature as opposed to a cookbook or a history book or, you know, what is it about that that makes it literary? One of the conclusions that they come to early is that in order to do this, they have to kind of not think about things like what was the author's intention or what the audience reception of the work would be. Again, this audience reception and author's intention was much more what criticism was about prior to the 20th century. Um, the problem with author's intention, a lot of them come to realize, is that uh, you may not know what the author's intention is. You don't always have it clearly stated in the work what the author meant. Uh, you sometimes have a work of uh, literature in front of you that you have no idea who wrote it, when it was written. And so they wanted to give you tools to be able to analyze what's in front of you. The other part about not knowing the author's intention is that in a lot of cases, authors had to lie about what their intention was. Uh, if you were highly critical of the king, for example, and you wrote a piece critical of the king or critical of the government, you couldn't exactly come out and say that in a straightforward manner. And many times in history and in many places still, you could end up in prison for this. So you would have to kind of hide your actual meaning in other meanings. Um, by nature, the work of fiction is a lie. Uh, not a lie in a malicious sense, but a lie in that you're talking about something that doesn't exist, people that aren't real, and events that did not happen. Um, lying has a odd thing, um, odd connection to our progress, though. Most people think of lies as something that are necessarily a bad thing. Um, but there are lies that, as, as you will see, uh, are not bad things. They're actually what allowed us to advance. The room I'm sitting in, for example, uh, at some time in the past, a person drew this room, an architect, when they were going to design this place. And at the time they drew this room, this room was a lie. This room did not exist. They were making something up out of their imagination. Um, but through technology, through constructing it, that lie that they put on paper actually becomes the room that I'm sitting in. 
Um, this is true of everything. You know, think about anything that's been built, anything, any invention that's come along. At one time, that building or that invention was a lie. It was a, it was a, a figment of someone's imagination. They imagined this thing, and then through understanding how things work, understanding uh, physics, understanding physical properties, understanding construction, they were able to make that lie into a reality. So when you think of lies, don't necessarily think of them as the negative, because lie is also an act of creativity. Now, a lot of whether a lie is negative or positive would have to do with what is the intention for the lie. If I lie in order to mislead you, to take advantage of you, this is a malicious lie. You know, if I'm lying and this is something that's going to hurt you and benefit me, this is definitely not a lie that is a a beneficial lie. It's very malicious. But if, let's say, you need a house and you come to me and you want me to design a house for you, and I draw you out a design for a house, putting where the rooms go, putting where the electrical, the plumbing, the wiring... Um, the lighting, the, all, all of these things are going to be in the house, the sizes, the dimensions, the uh, materials used to build it. As I'm putting this, I'm constructing a lie because I'm constructing something that does not exist. But I'm constructing this so that we can take this lie and turn it into a reality. So <clears throat> for many of the authors, getting back to the author's intentions, they would often have to lie. Um, so there's a lot of reason for ignoring what the author had to say or what the author seemed to be saying and just look at the work itself. Now, the Russian formalists, the main type of literature they looked at, they were mainly interested in the novel. So the Russian formalists were looking at things that you're very familiar with. You know, when you read a novel, you expect to see a plot line. This is something that other types of writing do not have. This is something that is exclusive to literary works. Uh, history has a timeline if you're writing a historical document, but you're simply telling the events in the order they actually happened. A plot line is something that is set up artificially so that you can uh, have them, have your characters, have your events move along a certain path until you get to a resolution. Now, the timeline that most, the plot line that most books were using up until this early period in the early 1900s was the typical plot line that you would uh, have studied in school. You have your initial incident at the beginning of the book, you have your rising action until the action comes to a climax, and then you have your resolution as all of it resolves itself in the end. <clears throat> Another thing that they discussed was that in a work of fiction, uh, particularly novels, you have a narrative voice that tells the story, and there are different kinds of voices. You have a first person who only has access to the things they see, hear, and think, and they can only tell you that from their perspective. You have the third person, which tells you from an outsider's perspective, and so can go in and out of the minds of different characters. And you also have different levels of um, reliability with these narrators. Like you may have a first-person narrator who is extremely reliable and tells you exactly what's going on. 
you may have a first-person narrator who is extremely unreliable. Uh, one of the things that Edgar Allan Poe did in a lot of his stories was to use an unreliable narrator. He has a person who is clearly not mentally fit telling you the story from their perspective. And so you can never distinguish what is actually happening and what is a delusion of the mind. So the third-person narrators are also similar. You have third-person omniscient, who knows everything, and then you have third-person limited, who only knows some of the action. Now, there are a few novels that go into second-person, but this is not very commonly used in novels. Um, the only one that I can think of off the top of my head that uses second-person is a book from the 80s called Bright Lights, Big City. Uh, Bright Lights, Big City is written in second person, which means uses the word you. So instead of saying, I went here, I did this, I feel this, I think this, the the novel is worded, um, you know, the novel I think starts out, you are a drug addict, you are living in New York City. So the entire novel is being told as if it's being told about you. Second person is a very awkward uh, form to use, and so it's not very commonly used. As time went on, um, you start moving into the 19-teens, and you have the Russian Revolution, which kind of interrupts the work of a lot of the Russian formalists, because they were forced at this point to uh, either become uh, pro-Soviet uh, writers or be executed or leave Russia. Some of them left Russia. Some of them became writers of pro-Soviet propaganda. The next group that comes along that kind of takes up the task of uh, literary theory, literary criticism, is a group called the New Critics. Now, the New Critics are generally thought to be started um, in the 1920s. One of the first writers of this group was T.S. Eliot, uh, who you may remember from the lecture on uh, the history of literature, was also the author of The Wasteland, which is very much in the modernist tradition. And in the modernist tradition, if you can remember, the writers of that time period saw themselves as living in a very broken world, where none of the old things seemed to hold together, everything seemed to be falling apart, and they were just trying to kind of put the pieces back together to make life make sense again. So these writers of the New Critics tend to be very politically conservative, but they also tend to be very conservative as far as what they start to analyze as and what they consider literature. And the New Critics were mostly interested in poetry. You know, the more perfect the poetic forms, the better the work of literature. And they, like the Russian formalists, also did not believe you should take the author into consideration. Each poem should be looked at in isolation. You shouldn't think about the author. You shouldn't think about the time period. You should simply look at the lines on the page and evaluate it based on that. And from this, they felt they would be able to come up with what were the more perfect poems and what were the ones not worth reading. Now, to analyze these, they did a lot of things that you probably have also uh, been, in, uh, been exposed to in school. Things like scanning the line, you know, figuring out the syllables, figuring out where the accents go on the syllables, 
You know, how many syllables per line? Looking at the rhyme scheme. You know, what is the rhyme scheme of the poem? What is the overall structure of the poem? Um, they would also look at things like the poetic devices, like paradox and metonymy and um, metaphor and simile. And they would they would bring all of this into consideration. And if you're kind of thinking back to your high school days, you probably remember that these things about studying novels based on their plot line and structure and character and what person narrative it is and studying poetry based on, you know, scanning the lines and counting syllables and looking for the uh, emphasized syllables and rhyme schemes and looking for the poetic devices. This is very much what most people are taught in, uh, at least in the United States in K through 12, as far as analyzing literature. Now, the new critics, as I said, tended to be very conservative politically and conservative with what they considered to be literature. Um, because remember, these are people that kind of see themselves as living in a world that's broken and everything is falling apart. And one of the things that they think, well, maybe we can hold on to this last thing. We can maybe just have poetry and we can say these are the great poems and whatever else falls apart, we still have that. So they tended to be very exclusive. And by exclusive, I mean they only allowed certain writers to be considered important writers, which for this group mainly meant that most of the writers that would be anthologized, you know, put in poetry collections, would be white male European and American authors, primarily, too, by European, uh, British, uh, French, and some Italians. Uh, most outside of that were not put into the anthologies. Most outside of that were really considered not very, uh, not to be part of the official canon of literature. Um, there are a lot of, most of the female writers did not make it into this canon of literature. Um, there were very few female writers at all that were considered to be in this. Um, there were no writers from other traditions. Um, no writers from the Americas as far as indigenous peoples, no writers of, you know, uh, African descent. They kind of excluded all of those um, and kind of set this up as a very much uh, white male predominant uh, catalog of literature. And if you buy poetry anthologies from the time period, you will see that this is often the case and these are often all you will see in the anthologies. Now, one of the uh, problems, too, with this and with the criticisms that came before the 20th century is that people often would be very narrow on what they considered to be the important works. And often those would not be the works that in later times people would actually um, be looking for. For example, in the American poets, if you looked back at the 18th century, you would see that the American poets that everyone was actually, or, I'm sorry, the 1800s, not the 18th century, that'd be the 19th century, uh, you would see that the poets that everyone were, was reading in America would be people like um, Wadsworth and Whittier. Well, if you come into the 20th century, 
uh, and even as a lit major, you're going to find that you do not really study those. Um, the poets you studied for the most part in the 19th century, uh, from America anyway, will be Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson. And in their time period, neither of them were very widely read. So the idea that you can kind of set up this, these are the important writers um, that the new critics try, is pretty much something that is doomed from the start. Because it's impossible to tell down the road which works are going to be considered important and um, still relevant and which works are going to kind of be laughed off as, well, these are kind of outdated and of, of not very much value anymore. Um, the other problem is in trying to say what you think is the good art, the good literature as opposed to the bad. This is very much dependent upon individual taste. And this is also dependent upon your individual mood at the time. For example, there are certain poems when I read them that absolutely speak to me in that moment. And it is one of the most wonderful things I've ever read. But if I come back to that at a later time and in a different frame of mind, my aesthetic experience of the poem might be, it's okay. It's not really the best. And so there are so many things that determine whether a, a work of art, a work of poetry, a work of literature is actually relevant that it's impossible to set up a standard of, well, these are the good ones and this is why. And this is also a reason that literary criticism more and more as the 20th century moves on tries to get away from that and tries to say, okay, how does this function? What does this tell us? And as we go into some of the other schools of literary theory in later podcasts, I'll go into some of those methods and talk about how do you actually use them in practice to analyze poetry and novels. Um, for now, I'm going to end this, and I'm, hope, I'm hoping you are all well, and I will talk to you again soon.